This morning I want us to look at Romans chapter 11, starting in verse uh, 33. So if you have your uh, Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Romans 11, verse 33. Uh, Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and so we will uh, switch gears out of uh, the book of Romans for a little bit and use that Sunday to uh, kind of prepare our hearts and our minds for the celebration of resurrection, the celebration of of Christ in in that um, special week uh, in our uh, redemption. But before we uh, look at this passage, just to prepare you with this, um, your Bible may have that, the heading uh, starting in verse 33 about how this is a doxology. This is a doxology of Paul that he gives. That word doxology is not in the Bible. It's just what we call uh, this uh, special section of, of Scripture. There's various doxologies uh, throughout the Bible. And doxa, which is the beginning of doxology there, just means glory. And so doxology is like a, um, an outburst of praise, an outburst of worship, an outburst of, of giving God uh, glory and honor, just a, a special time to, to really praise him for who he is. In our service, we do this every week. Uh, we, have a, we sing a doxology that we sung moments ago after the offering before the apostles Creed, it's just this outpouring or outburst of, of worship to God and thankfulness to God for who he is. At the end of the service, you remember, you know, that I give a, a benediction. This is a, a blessing from God that we receive from him, something that we take with us as we exit the doors of the sanctuary. We go into the world uh, pursuing the calling that God has on each and every one of us in our lives with that blessing that he gives. It's something that's given to us. A doxology is something that we give to God. It's that, that worship of him, a special praise, a, a blessing, if you will, uh, that we bless him with. So, with. so with that said, let's read this uh, short portion of Scripture. As you're able, let's stand together. Uh, Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would be glorified in these moments that the truth and the reality of all that you are would settle afresh and anew upon us. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Years ago, I made the mistake of allowing a person that was selling a water purifying system into our home to give us some time to talk about uh, this uh, modern marvel, if you will. Uh, They promised a Target gift card, and so that was kind of all we needed at that moment in our lives. And so the appointed time came, and they came, and, and uh, he shared with us his device, this, this thing, that purifier that he had. Uh, first thing he did was he tested our water that we had in our house, and I was shocked to find out that it wasn't as pure as it could be. And uh, he proceeded to go on and share with us all the benefits of this special purifier that he could uh, set up in our house. You know, we would have, you know, obviously, we'd, it'd be healthier water to drink. 
It'd be healthier water to, to cook with and to, to, to bathe with. We'd have all those, we'd have cleaner teeth with it. Uh, to my wife's embarrassment, he took out a, a rag, poured some of his purified water on it, and got down and scrubbed our carpet back and forth, back and forth, revealing how much cleaner our carpets would be if we just used this uh, special purified water. So all these health benefits that we would have if we had this purifying system. Then he talked about the science of it all, what actually takes place and the purifying, what that looks like. He showed us pictures of where the equipment would be on our house and what it would look like to, to have this stuff around. And on and on he went about our need for this. And then, of course, the, the time came, would you be interested? Oh, well, sure. Who doesn't want purified water? And he said, well, here's what it would cost. And then I said, well, the budget doesn't allow that. And so around and round we went. Uh, it, it, just a side, whenever I say the budget doesn't allow it, it's what you think it means. It's like, I don't want to pay for this, and I don't want to, to purchase this. But nonetheless, there was this discussion back and forth about how much we needed this and, and so on. And it took a while to get to know and to get our, our gift card. As we think about this passage here this morning, Paul is not trying to sell us on anything. He's not trying to persuade us on the benefits of, of knowing God like this in your life. He's not saying, you know, you need to live like this because God is so true and he's so rich. He's not trying to, to do any of that. All he's doing is he's stating for us, this is the reality of who God is. This is the truth about him. He's just stating all these facts about him. And this morning, that's all I want us to do is look at this passage. What does this passage teach us about God? What does it teach us about his attributes, if you will? And what does it say about us and, and, and the worship of him in our lives? So two points or two questions I want us to, to think about. The first is, what led Paul to doxology? What led him to worship like this? What, what was going on? What was significant about it? And what does that teach us about our own hearts uh, in worship? And then the obvious question, what's the content of this doxology? What do we learn about God? What are the attributes that we see uh, picked up here? So what, is this, uh, what led Paul to doxology? Uh, simply look at the context. Uh, where is this passage? That's the end of chapter 11. And if you've been tracking with us and read the book of Romans, you know that for some 11 chapters, he has been talking about uh, the, the greatness of God in the context of the gospel, who we are and what God has done and how uh, he's given us all these good things. Some would say that, that Romans is, is Paul's masterpiece uh, of a book. It's so rich. It's so deep. Uh, there, are, there are individuals who, who know Greek and Hebrew, who can read Greek and Hebrew like we read the paper, who will pick up Romans and they'll always find something new in this book. It's just so deep and so rich. And so for 11 chapters, Paul has been going on talking about Christ. And when we get to chapter 12, there's going to be this therefore and it's going to say, in light of all these truths that, that have been talked about and discussed, therefore live like this, therefore practice this, therefore apply this to your life. In light of the Holy Spirit, in light of Christ and salvation and, and grace and mercy and the gospel and, and righteousness, therefore live like this. But before we get to that therefore, we get this doxology. Now some of us, maybe you imagine Paul writing this letter. He's hunched over a desk He's got his, his pen in hand. He's got his candle right in front of him. And he's just scribing away, writing the, this, this book of Romans out. 
Well, evidence would suggest that it wasn't him actually hunched over a desk writing these things out, but it was more dictated, that he had somebody else was writing this down. And perhaps we imagine Paul pacing back and forth in a room, just sharing and giving the content of this letter to the church in Rome. And you can imagine Paul pacing, if you will, back and forth. He just stops and he just praises God. He just, God, I thank you for, for this, this, and this, for all these things that you are, this doxology that we have before us. And the point is that, that Paul comes across to us as very spontaneous. We get why he would do this because he's talked about forgiveness. He's talked about grace. He's talked about the gospel. He's talked about Christ and righteousness, this mystery. All these things have been enwrapped for us in these 11 chapters. And then Paul praises God. Then Paul worships him. It's a sense that it was spontaneous. That, and by spontaneous, I mean this, that, that nobody had to tell Paul to begin to worship God in light of all these truths before him. It's the same with us. When, when your team wins the big game or wins the national championship, nobody has to turn to you and say, okay, you can be happy now. Okay, you can cheer now. Nobody has to go to you when you're in the Grand Canyon and you're taking in the vastness of this. Nobody has to say to you, okay, you need to be in awe of this. That's how you respond to this event. When you're getting married and your spouse is walking down the aisle, nobody needs to say to you, okay, you need to smile now. You need to be happy now because the love of your life is, is walking towards you. You just do it. It's just, it's just natural. It's, the, it's, it's what is due. It's, it just comes up from you to... to to be excited or to be happy or to be in awe. And it's the same with Paul. It's spontaneous in the sense that nobody had to tell him, Paul, you know what? You've been forgiven and you've been given grace and adoption and all these other truths. And Paul, now you need to praise God for those things. Now, it just comes out. It's just who he is in light of this truth, in light of this reality that's before him. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, observes how that the, in, the, in the Psalms, You'll have the, the authors who are talking about God, they're, they're praising God, and often there's this invitation uh, to praise God and to worship him, uh, for, for God's people to worship him, even for all of creation, creation to come and, and to worship him. And you think, well, why is that? Why do, do the psalmist have these invitations for people to come and worship and to give praise to God? Well, the answer is it's just the natural thing to do. When you care about something, when you love something, when you um, find great joy and delight in something, the natural thing to do is to invite other people in that with you. Uh, Lewis writes this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. And then he gives this example. It's not out of a compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. And again, we do this all the time. If there was a big game last night, if you're a big Auburn fan, you're going to talk about that game the next day with your friends. Okay? If you've got a, a good health report from the doctor, you're going to talk about that good news with your friends. If you've got a pair of shoes or a great dress, you're going to talk about that with other people because you delight in that and you just, want, you just have to share it. It's incomplete in your life. That the joy in that is not full, it's not meaningful, it's not as weighty as it could be until you talk about it with somebody else. And that's what Paul is doing here. 
It's a delight in, in God that he just has to communicate. He just, it just comes out of him. Let's pause here for a moment and think about Paul spontaneously worshiping and ask ourselves, what's our worship like? Because Paul is, is modeling what it looks like to, to praise God and delight in him and have affection for him and joy for him. What is our worship of God like? How are we responding to him? The hymns that we sing, the, the verses that we find in the Bible, what are those doing in our hearts and our minds? How are they resonating with us? In his book, Desiring God, John Piper asked the question, is worship for you joy or duty? Is worship for you joy or duty? And his point in, in asking that question is, the type of worship that brings God honor is worship that comes from the inside, Worship that's, that has resonated in, in joy and in delight. Worship that comes from the outside or in a mechanical way or going through the motions of it does not honor him, does not bring him delight. Again, Paul is, 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 is led to worship God because of everything that he has been articulating, everything that he has been describing, grace, salvation, righteousness, Christ, and how amazing it is to him for, for 11 chapters. And then he just begins to praise God in these moments of doxology. If you were to say to Paul, Paul, is, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? He would say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. We, we get that. We, that's obvious to us. But nobody could, could, could look at Paul and after hearing and reading what he has written here, could not think that Jesus is more than a Lord and Savior to Paul. Because this doxology tells us, reminds us that for Paul, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, was something that he delighted in, was something that he found as his great treasure. Jesus was more than a Lord, more than a Savior, but he was his treasure. In the New Testament, Jesus has these, these parables. And there's, there's a handful of parables that, just, that he has described and told that articulate the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And in one parable, teaching on the kingdom of God, he makes this uh, analogy, if you will. He says, that, imagine a, a treasure. The kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in a field. And some of you know this parable. The kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in a field. And somebody comes across and they find this treasure buried in this field and that individual, out of the joy in that treasure, wanting that treasure, goes home, has a giant garage sale. He puts everything on eBay that he can to raise up and find enough money to go and buy that field because he delights in that treasure, because he finds great joy in that treasure. Paul is showing us that Jesus is more than my Lord. He's more than my Savior, but he's somebody I see as my treasure, my delight to have, and I worship him. Piper gives this illustration or this analogy about the difference between or how God is honored when we do it out of joy versus honored, how God is not honored when we do it just mechanically out of, out of duty. He says, imagine it's your anniversary and you go to the store and you buy these a dozen roses, and they are beautiful roses, long stem roses. You, they're packaged right, and you bring them home, and you give them to your wife, and it's this perfect hallmark moment, okay? She takes those roses and says, they are so beautiful. She gives you a big hug, and you respond by saying, it's not a big deal. It was my duty to do it. Now, I'm not like 
I'm pretty good at marriage because we've been married. We're still married, but I'm going to say to you, the rest of the night is not going to go well for you if you say it was your duty, okay? Because she's perceiving that she's not honored in that. She's not delighted in, in that. It was just something you felt obligated to do. When God asks us to worship, it's, it, comes, it should come from inside, from a joy that we have in him. And I think Paul is mod- modeling for us the, how spontaneous he is in worship, it seems, where just out of the blue he just has this doxology. But it makes sense when you remember that for Paul, Christ was his treasure. Who is Christ to you? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? But is he your treasure? Do you take delight in him, joy in him? And the beautiful thing about this doxology is that it gives us more, it gives us a deeper, richer understanding of this treasure. Because we all have these moments when we're distracted by this, or we're busy, or we're just feeling out of it, and we need to be reminded of who God is so that we can recapture that joy and delight in him. And so let's look through this doxology and, and piece it apart. There's, there's three, section I want, three sections I want us to look at from it. The first section is verse 33. And verse 33 articulates for us the depth of God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Some of you are, are, are fishermen or fisherwomen, and you go out and you into the lake or to the ocean, and you know that there's only so far that you can see into the water. You know, so many feet down that you can just you can see into the water. You can't see below that surface. You can't see really deep. But what Paul is doing is saying, I'm not going to give you a shallow view of God. I'm going to take you on a deep, the depth of who God is, and the depth of our understanding of him. And he introduces us or reminds us of the riches of God. And the riches of God are simply what he owns, everything that he owns, that, that, that he is without nothing, that he owns it all. In, in the Old Testament, it would be described like this. That God owns the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. And today, and just like they could do back then, we would add to that. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but he owns every planet, every solar system, every universe is his. He's the owner of it all. There's nothing that he cannot say is his. It all belongs to him. Think about maybe like this. If we want to do something creative, we want to build something we want to paint something. Uh, we want to, to write something. It, we are limited in what we can create by our resources. The resources that we have on hand, the resources that are out in the world, or the resources that a loan from the bank will provide for us, we're limited by that. But think about God's wealth, God's riches. He's not limited by those things at all. He owns it all. He creates it all. If, if he's lacking a resource, he just speaks it into existence just like he spoke creation into existence. Not only are there rich, his riches without limit, so is his wisdom and knowledge is deep. He knows every fact. He knows every bit of truth. He knows every ounce of science. He knows every word and every language. He knows every book, every chapter, every paragraph, every sentence, every word. He knows every mountain. He knows the depths of every ocean. He knows every planet and every star by name. He knows every atom, every molecule. He knows every cell. He is aware of every event, how every event plays out on every level. 
the depth and wisdom of God is unsearchable. It's, it's beyond our imagination, and I think we can imagine a lot. How does that resonate with you? To hear the, the riches of God, to hear the, the, the knowledge of God, that the wisdom of God, how does that resonate with you? If you're like me, it's just, there's a sense of awe, it's a sense of amazement that, that he can know all those things and have that kind of wealth, those kind of riches, that creative, that kind of power. There's a sense of awe that it should stimulate inside of us. But my question for us is, is why do we have these moments with God where we're questioning or where we're skeptical or maybe when we're kind of critical? It's like, God, why did you do it this way? Or why does it have to be like this? Some of you know that my grandmother, who is 98, passed away recently and she had a, a great life. I mean, 98, incredible life. Uh, her, she's much beloved in our family. And we had her service in, in Beaufort uh, some uh, shortly ago. And she was buried at National Cemetery there in Beaufort, where her husband was buried because of his service in the military. And I don't know if you've been to a National Cemetery or participate in a, in a service there. But when you get there, you've got to be there at a certain time in a certain spot and then you go to this, what I call this staging area. And maybe I'm more sensitive to this because I am usually have a hand in these kind of services. You go to this staging area and you wait. And you wait for the, the guy that's going to, the individual that's going to lead you onto this pavilion area. And it's, what I, it's like a pavilion. It's just um, a roofed, in air, roofed up area. There's a, some chairs out there and there's a place uh, for you to, to do this uh, service. And you've only got like 15, maybe 20 minutes. Uh, the individual that's, that's leading your, your time in this pavilion, he gets up and he introduces himself. And then he hands it over to, to the minister. And when the minister says amen, he comes up again and he says, thank you for, for coming. And then he just as, as graciously and as uh, kindly as possible, he says, it's time to go. You've got to move on. You can't go to the graveside. You can't uh, go there as they're uh, putting the, the casket uh, into the ground there. You can go there later after they've done. But it's, it, and again, maybe I'm more sensitive to it, but it feels kind of impersonal. And you kind of want, it's like, why does it have to be that way? And I think all of us, we hit moments in our life where we think about God. And we think, God, why does it have to be like this? Why do you have to do things like this? And you think about that in, in light of a, of a passage like this. Think, who are we to question God? He's abundant, and there's no end to his wisdom, to his knowledge, to his resources. And you think how often we go to God and say, God, what if, why do you have to do it like this? I mean, from us, I mean, we can barely take care of our finances, or we can barely run our families. We can barely run, keep up with, with work activities and, and scheduling activities and all these kind of things that demand our time. Who are we to go to God and say, God, you know what? Maybe this is not right. When this passage demands of us just a sense of awe, a sense of trusting in who he is. Verse 34 and 35 take us and help illustrate for us the incomprehensibility of his character. The incomprehensibility of his character. He's quoting from two Old Testament uh, verses here. In verse 34, he's quoting from Isaiah 40 when he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? It is unimaginable that we have anything to teach God, that, that God would lean into us for any reason and say, you know, I need your help here with this area. 
Uh, it's unimaginable that that would be the, the case. Who are we to seek counsel from him? It's him that gives us counsel. It's him that gives us direction. It's him that gives us advice and wisdom. He's the one that examines us, not us examining him. And then verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This is him quoting from Job chapter 41. And if you're familiar with Job, you know Job has had a hard time of it. And at the end of that kind of book, Job is is wondering about God. Why is it he's questioning God? And God's response to Job is a series of questions. And this is one of those questions. Um, you know, how could you question me? You know, were you with me when I founded the earth? Were you with me when I founded the stars? Were you with me when I did all these incredible, mighty things? And the answer is, is no, I, I don't know. Who am I to question uh, you? Everything under heaven belongs to him. One of the, the takeaways for us is to allow this incomprehensible character of God, what he's able to do and, and who he is, to allow that character deepen our trust in him, deepen our following of him, deepen our, our submission to him, and to stop, in a sense, trying to, to pray different outcomes for him, to stop praying our own agenda, to stop, if, if you think about it, wrestling, trying to wrestle things out of him that we want, that we think are best for us. And, and this is maybe what I mean by that. Sometimes Christians will ask, What's, what does prayer do? And sometimes we're tempted to think, well, prayer changes God. Prayer changes God. It changes what he's going to do. And I, I just don't think you can make that assessment in light of this passage that we are not changing God's mind when we pray, when we're real earnest in our, our fasting of him. What, what's really happening is that he is changing us. He owns it all. That we are not his counselors, but he gives us counsel. He gives us wisdom. He gives us insight. I mean, who are we to, to go to him? God, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I know you've been around for a long time, and you've got a lot of power, but, you know, I feel like I've got some positive things to offer to you. It, it doesn't work like that. God is God of wisdom and grace and power and might. His ways go far beyond us, and we lean into him to help us and to change us, not the other way around. Or sometimes we, we do this. We say, God, I, I want to make a deal with you. If you do this, then I will do that. If you do that, then I will do this. Like we can wrestle some kind of outcome from him, that we can bargain with him to make some kind of deal. And in light of this passage, how do you think God's responding? He's up there saying, what do you have that I don't have? You know, if, if I, I lack for nothing, and even if I did lack for nothing, I would just make it out of nothing. Uh, I, I don't need you to serve me. Uh, there, there's nothing that you can offer me that I don't have. I'm all-powerful. I'm almighty. Uh, you have nothing to give me. You have no leverage with me. And yet we think we can offer a deal. If you'll do this, then I will do that. When God is calling us to follow him, to trust his wisdom, to trust his counsel, to to trust his ways with our own lives. Uh, One pastor says regarding prayer, there's two foundational elements to uh, a healthy prayer life. The first is to remember whom we are speaking to, that we are speaking to a God of wisdom, 
of knowledge, of understanding, of power, of might, of righteousness. The list could go on to remember who we are speaking to. And then the second foundation principle is to remember who we are. We're not perfect. We fall short. We're broken. We, have, we lack in this and that area. We have limitations to remember our brokenness, to remember his might and his perfection, to remember that he is a creator and we are simply his creature. Well, the last one, verse 36, and then we'll, we'll close in prayer. We see here God's independent glory. God's independent glory. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If you had to sum up who God is, sum up his attributes, sum up who he is, this, would, this verse would be a, a big contender, verse 33. And you see it broken down and describing three things. He is the source and owner of it all. He is the source and owner of it all. If you with us here on past Wednesday night, we started a new series talking about the Holy Spirit. And as the, the teacher was talking about the Holy Spirit, he made reference to Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the source of all things. And then Paul goes on to say that all things are through him, which means that all things are sustained by him. The psalmist puts it like this. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. He is the source of all. Everything is held together by him every day of our lives. And finally, he is the purpose of all things. All things are for his glory. Your salvation is for his glory. Your calling is for his glory. Christ is for his glory. His grace is for his glory. His answering our prayers is for his glory. Everything is about his glory and his honor. The catechism that's being beginning to be taught on Wednesday night starts with this statement. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's all for his glory. And that glory is our delight, our treasure. You notice the last word is amen. It's like Paul is inviting us to say amen with him. And when we say amen, we're saying, let it be, that this is so true. I confess this to be real. I confess this to be my reality. When I say amen, it's like I want, these, I want him in my life like this. I want to know him as my counselor. I want to know him as my God. I want to know him as a God who has infinite wisdom, has infinite power, and I want to be spent for his glory. Take this verse, take this passage, and let it be a help to you to get that joy in God, to be a model. This is what it means to delight in him, to have these things, to know the reality of these things are going to produce a God in your life that's a treasure, that's somebody you delight in. Let's pray and ask him to work. Father God, the, the impact and the weight of these verses of what Paul articulates about who you are, I pray that it would make us feel small, that it would humble us, that it would make us a people that give up on our own plans and agendas in a sense, 
and surrender it all to you because you are a God of glory. You are a God of power. You are a God of might. Father God, would you help us to understand more of the reality of who you are, that your attributes would weigh upon us in such a way as not a burden, not a duty, but in such a way that resonates you as our treasure, you as one that is all-satisfying in all good, in our good. We ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.